In 2015, the landmark Montgomery Judgment created one of the most significant shifts in informed consent to treatment in more than 60 years of medical practice. I'm Murray Anderson-Wallace, and in this, the third and final podcast in our series, I'll be further exploring the legal, ethical and practical implications of the judgment and discussing the new guidance produced by the Royal College of Surgeons on consent-supported decision-making. In the first episode, we considered the legal context for the move towards supported decision-making, and in the second, we considered the benefits beyond the law. The move towards supported decision-making places new demands on the behaviour of clinicians. It involves a quite subtle but fundamental shift in the relationship between patients and their doctors. For many, this will be a welcome development, but for others, it may feel at best unusual and at worst an abdication of responsibility. In this final episode, I'll be discussing how surgeons can ease the transition and consider some of the practical implications. Leslie Hamilton is the Director of Professional Affairs and Council Member of the Royal College of Surgeons. The emphasis in the past has been very much on the signing the consent form, um, which actually in legal terms didn't have any validity if the patient could show they weren't given the information, but that's where the emphasis was. Sue Hill is a consultant vascular surgeon and council member of the college. What we're wanting to do is support their decision-making, not have them consent to have a procedure performed. And as things stand, we very often go into the consultation to take their consent. That's the wrong approach. We should be helping them make a decision as to how we treat them. In future, if for a straightforward procedure, then there won't be an issue because there may not be many alternatives and the patient can decide whether or not they want it. But for the more complex procedures or a patient with lots of comorbidities, where there may be some debate about the benefits the patient may give or increased risks, I think that's going to have to be a senior person because ultimately that person will have to weigh up what that patient can take in and also the benefits and, and risks to that specific patient. Claire Marks is the president of the Royal College of Surgeons. And I also think it's really important that if a doctor doesn't know what the procedure is, they shouldn't actually try and con take consent for it. Trying to consent someone for an operation you've never seen, don't know anything about, don't really understand, is hopeless. I often say to trainees when they first come in, why don't you sit in on a couple of cases so that we can actually have an experience of that and then perhaps we can have a conversation about what you feel comfortable in doing. Because it may be that they won't feel comfortable in taking it as far as the full consent, but they may feel comfortable in having some of the preliminary discussions and then coming through and asking the senior person to come, depending on the magnitude of the procedure or just depending on the way the patient re reacts to the information they've been given. Sue Hill. So there can be a huge number of people involved and then you remember that the patient will go home and have extra pressures from friends and family away from you. Uh, and nowadays as well, of course, they can all look things up on the internet, which can be completely unreliable. Claire Marks. It starts before they ever get referred to hospital. And I find it very interesting that quite often I'll ask somebody, what have you and your, your GP discussed about this? And the answer will be nothing. He has just referred me to see you. I do think that conversations need to be had at every opportunity in dumping information on patients about all these risks. What we're doing is really just offloading this risk profile onto them. And it's all in the way you have that conversation. How much can I 
tell you at the moment about that or would you like to read about it or can we ask you to discuss that with the nurse practitioner or do you want to just discuss particular areas that you might have heard about that you feel might be important for you to understand better? What are your thoughts about encouraging the use of recording devices or smartphones or so on to document conversation? I think from the patient's point of view that would be a very valuable aid. And with modern devices, it's so easy to do. The reason we haven't done it in the past is it was too cumbersome. But now with smartphones, they can just switch it on. And the medical defence organisations are very clear in their guidance that this is a perfectly reasonable thing for a patient to do. But it comes back to the important point about uh, recording the content of the discussion and giving a patient a copy of that afterwards so that they have a record of what was discussed. Some surgeons even feel that it's appropriate to dictate that in the presence of the patient so they can hear what's being said and they can adjust it accordingly. Well, much of what we do in medicine and surgery, there's uh, not a strong evidence base for so we're not we're familiar with that. From the patient's point of view, there's good evidence to show that if the patient feels involved in the decision-making process, uh, it reduces the number of complaints, so communication is better and that they're more satisfied with their treatment, which is ultimately what we want as surgeons. So you're suggesting that uh, it takes a shift in terms of the way that people ask questions and communicate, but also there is a practical implication here, is there not? There's a really important issue, which is that as we're squeezed in terms of our consultation times, we have to find better ways of getting into the conversation as clinicians, we're really bad at interrupting our patients and we're very scared of actually asking those open questions. What's really interesting is that I, I, I was listening to a study which said if you ask an open question, the chances are they're not likely to talk for more than about 90 seconds maximum before they stop. In a 10-minute consultation, actually, I think you can allow people a pretty good talk. If you're saying what can one do, I think first of all one has to just step back a little and remember that this is not a routine consent. So the procedure for anybody is not a routine procedure. Even if it's something that we regard as very simple, say a hernia repair, for that patient is pretty important and an out of the ordinary occurrence. So we need to give time, give attention and actually give the patients an opportunity to ask questions. But I think we also need to push them to ask questions. Very often patients will sit quietly while you tell them what you think is the procedure, what, what you are aware of as the complications. And you need to actually say, do you have any questions? Is there anything I haven't made clear? So I think we need to actually push the patients a little more. The doctor's duty is therefore not fulfilled by bombarding the patient with technical information which she cannot reasonably be expected to grasp, let alone by routinely demanding her signature on a consent form. That was one of, you know, the judge actually said that, because they know that's what happens. In our first podcast, we met Mr Roberts, his daughter Claire, and our fictitious surgeon. The dramatisation was based on two real medico-legal case studies involving consent to surgery. In our second podcast, we returned to the dramatisation some weeks after Mr Roberts' surgery to hear how things went. In this final episode, we return to Mr Roberts and ask him to reflect on the outcomes of his surgery and the overall effect on his quality of life.
When he, he, he told me about taking it out of my leg and he told me about taking my chest and my arm and he didn't, exp- he said there would be some complications, he talked about bleeding and various other things, but he didn't say anything about loss of sensation. He said he, do, he does them all the time, you know, when, when Claire said about Mrs. Henderson, he said, oh yes, he said, I do three or four of these a week. Um, you know, to him, it's just the run-of-the-mill operation. To me, of course... It was unique. I felt I felt sort of a little bit of pressure from him, as though he was looking at me and saying, "You'd be a fool if you don't take the ninety-seven percent. Don't take the three percent." He did actually say that. I think at some point he said, "In my opinion, or my team's opinion." And then he said something about, "Well, if you want to do this, you could go. It's not my decision. You've got to go back to your cardiologist." And I thought, I can't even remember who the cardiologist was. But I'm seventy-nine years old. In biblical terms, I've already had nine years bonus, haven't I? So living longer isn't actually a problem to me. And in fact, the longer you live, you know, I've got some elderly friends whose life, the quality of their life is, is awful. So I wasn't interested in, in a longer life. What I was interested in was the quality of my life. And in fact, looking back on it, actually the quality of my life's worse now and I'm going to live longer with it. That's no... No option, is it, eh? So I'm going to live longer. So what? I've certainly been aware that I've got back to my office and thought that was not a really good conversation. And I think the change that has happened really makes it vitally important that we now are brave enough when that happens to actually maybe get back in touch with the patient and invite them back in so that we can try and have a better conversation and really be sure that both they are happy and we are happy that we understand what's going on. And that is is time-consuming and you do have to be quite brave to do it, but I think it's going to be worth it in the long run. So even though it's now the law and it would seemed to need a big shift in the whole system by spending a little bit more time with the patient, tailoring the discussion to that individual patient and discussing alternative treatments with them and recording the decision-making process will go a long way to both providing better patient care and meeting our legal obligations. What role do you hope that the new guidance from the Royal College of Surgeons will have in supporting people in this change? We hope after the amount of thought and discussion that very senior clinicians and other members of teams have put into this guidance, people will look at it seriously, consider it, and be open-minded about what they can do in terms of changing their whole environment in the process of getting consent. In summary, we have to tailor the information we give to the individual patient. We have to make them aware of all alternative treatments and their risks and benefits. And we have to respect the the right of the patient to choose, something that we may not think is in their best interests. We're always interested in feedback. We really would like to know if people find certain aspects useful. We'd like to know what aspects people vehemently disagree with. And if we've got it wrong, then we would obviously look at that, but I think we've got to seize the moment and actually make the changes now. 
but we just don't have the luxury of not changing. Mr. Roberts was played by Lionel Guyot. Interviewees were Claire Marks, Leslie Hamilton and Sue Hill. The series was presented by Murray Anderson Wallace and written and produced by Murray Anderson Wallace and Ronan Denning. Professional advisors were Leslie Hamilton and Katerina Sarafidu. The production manager was Leslie Davis. Informed Consent was an Anderson Wallace production for the Royal College of Surgeons of England.